You know, this Lenten season is, uh, is, is going to be a powerful season. We began last Wednesday, or this past Wednesday, with Ash Wednesday, where we put ashes on foreheads, and Pastor Pam and I said the words, uh, you are but dust, and to dust you shall return. So Lent is a time for us to reflect on our humanity. It's a time for us to be in tune with uh, who we are from an introspective point of view and to see uh, what's really happening in our hearts and in our lives. So our prayer is that um, every day of the Lenten season that, that you will be doing that, you, that you will humble yourself, uh, that you will pray, that you will open your heart to God's leading, but that you would also invite God to <clears throat> come and partner in, in your life in a sense that uh, God would help you to move through the things that are holding you back. Lenten is a season that brings freedom, and we see that and we experience that on Easter Sunday. Um, hopefully you're getting our daily Lenten devotions. If you're not that yet, um, email us at church at stpaulumc.org or go into the bulletin. It'll tell you how to do that or go online. And we want to make sure that uh, you are getting those. But every day we're sending out a devotion specific for that day that's taking the place of our weekly growth guide. And our hope is that every day that we're on this journey with you, uh, that you're experiencing something of great importance. So here we are in Lent. You know, uh, there's a lot to be said about names, and we're, we're in a new series, which is called Jesus, No Other Name. So over the next several weeks, we're going to be talking about the various names given to Jesus and the importance of that. And these names that um, have been given to the Lord are names that describe and define a significant characteristic about who he is and what he represents in our life. And today we're going to talk about Jesus as a friend of sinners. Um, I was thinking a little bit about names and all of that, and we can go back to the Genesis story, <clears throat> and we can experience what names were all about. You know, folks, uh, the animals were not named in the very beginning. God gave that privilege to Adam, and Adam began to do that. And I, and I always say to folks, I can tell in the very beginning, Adam was so excited about this new task. He was so creative. He was using compound words as he was coming up with the names of animals. Hippopotamus, rhinoceros, uh, duck-billed platypus. I mean, it was fantastic. Now, you can imagine that as they're coming up two by twos and he's looking at this long line, he gets exasperated because very somewhere in that process, it changes. He starts with rat, mouse, bat, bird, dog, cat. So, so something about names, and, and names, are, names are things that are very important to us. Names are important, and a lot of important people we know have names that come with that. And uh, normally, though, when, when someone is well-known, uh, there's something about their life that makes some sense, but it's not until after they die that usually posthumously uh, we see some significant things happen in their life. Um, not too many years ago, we lost the great innovator Steve Jobs, uh, Steve Jobs was a huge innovator, iProducts, uh, Apple, and, and all those kinds of things. In fact, somebody said about 20 years ago, uh, we had some of the greats. We had Bob Hope, we had Steve Jobs, we had Johnny Cash, and today we have no hope, no jobs, and no cash. <laughs> but, you know, it, it seems that way, doesn't it? And what we learned, though, about, about names is significant things come. Now, when we look at the name of Jesus, I think it's fair to say, now, now before you send me emails and go like, Pastor, how could you say that? Listen to what I'm saying. I think it's fair to say in the first 100 years after Jesus' life, uh, his life had a greater impact, probably impacting more people than it did while he was alive. 
He was in Palestine, a small region. A small group of people began to see. But 100 years after his life, the impact of Jesus was, was huge. 500 years, 1,000 years, 2,000 years. We can see after someone's life <clears throat> the, the significance that comes from that. And why is Jesus so significant? And that's beginning with name number one. Jesus, the friend of sinners. Um, I played a little game this week online, and, and I went and I looked at, you know, what's in my name? And, and if you've ever Googled your name, go to one of those uh, uh, sites where you can get kind of the origin of what your name represents. So I, I went ahead and I typed in Robert. And, and listen to some of the things that came up about my name. Robert, you have a great sense of responsibility and duty. Your tendency is to finish whatever you start. You're tolerant and you like to help humanity. You're generally warm-hearted and give freely of your time and energy, and you're sympathetic and understanding. You have tolerance and acceptance of the frailties of others. I didn't know this about myself. Um, <laughs> universal and humanitarian in outlook. You find the best contentment in life when you provide well for your family and loved ones. I did know that. Um, you're comforting, appreciative, and affectionate. Your obligation in life is to hold justice and truth you're always looking for a chance to do your own thing and to be your own person. And then somebody on my staff added this last one. I know they did. And you have to have things done your own way. <laughs> but what is in a name? And if you think about that, a name is something that is huge. At the beginning of Matthew's gospel, an angel comes and appears to poor, um, contentious, uh, shaking, afraid Joseph. And the angel says, uh, you're going to name your uh, son by the name of Jesus. And that name is why? Because he is going to save the people from their sins. He said specifically, name him Jesus, and it means that he's going to save his people from their sins. What, what does the word save mean, or to save? Anyway, in the Greek, um, there's a couple of different connotations that come from that. To save in Greek means to liberate, or to heal, or to comfort, or to rescue. So when we think of the name of Jesus, Jesus comes to heal, Jesus comes to liberate, he comes to rescue, he comes to comfort. And God um, moves into that role through flesh as Jesus in the world. And therefore, God brings salvation to his people. Now, if you're, if you're not someone who understands what that means, some of us, um, we might be embarking the faith journey, and it's okay. We all have to start somewhere. <clears throat> and those of us who have been in our faith journey a little bit longer or we're a little bit more mature in our faith, we have to remember that one day we started knocking on the door of faith, right? And one day we asked that the door be opened, and therefore it opened, and we journeyed in. And we have to remember that we want to come alongside as the body of Christ, with individuals um, who are asking those questions. So if you're not well known with what's going on with, with life and those kind of things, we have to remember that, that Jesus uh, is the person who saves. And, and who are the kind of people that Jesus saves? If you don't really know the story of Christ, you might think that Jesus only saves the wealthy or Jesus only saves the, uh, the famous and, and Jesus only saves the people that live in the right neighborhoods. But what we come to find out is that, that John actually said that, that everything that we need to know about Jesus could not be written in all the books of the world. Now, obviously, that was an exaggeration. But what John was trying to say was, but if you read my gospel, I'm going to tell you exactly all you need to know of the story of Jesus. So therefore, you will know that you know that you know who Jesus is, who he is as a friend of sinners. Now, Jesus got into a lot of trouble. Folks, sometimes when we think of the Lord's life, we think that, wow, you know, he just went around making friends and all those things. Actually, uh, Jesus got in more trouble 
uh, bringing ministry into the world than he did in, than, than not getting in trouble. And why did he get into so much trouble? He brought in trouble because uh, we get to a point where he began to say who was saved. And the list of people that he was listing who were going to be saved and who were friends of God were not meshing very well with the list that were held by the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and the lawgivers. They objected. How dare Jesus say that that person there is a friend of God? How dare Jesus say that that person will be saved? In fact, the fact that he was saying that people were being saved was what they called blasphemy and therefore ultimately led to his death. Now, think about it for a second. There are probably people that you've come across in your life or groups of individuals that you have, might have said somewhere along the line, how dare that person think that God would save them? Or that heinous crime that that group did, how dare that group say that God could save them? God did. And we need to get that straight. And we need to understand that Jesus came into the world to save all sinners. Now, Matthew, as Pastor Pam read to us, Matthew says that he goes and he, has, uh, he eats a meal at Matthew's house and all of Matthew's friends, all of Matthew's sinning friends, all of the tax collectors, Jesus is there. And the one line that the Pharisees are saying, which is stirring the pot, is this. How can this man eat with tax collectors and how can he eat with sinners? Now think about that for a second. It'd be one thing for somebody less desirable to wander up to your table. It'd be one thing for them to say, may I have a meal with you and, and have a place with that. But it's another thing for Jesus to go actively searching and seeking for those individuals, sinners, people who are not righteous at all, people who make bad choices, people who you and I and others at some point in our life would probably not want to associate with. But Jesus said, let me come and help have dinner with you. How can Jesus be a friend of sinners? You know, sometimes we often ask ourselves, how can I be a friend of sinners? And we have to remember the, the befriending hand of God. We have to remember the love of God. We have to remember the importance of what God's message is for us today, that despite what we might think and the things that we struggle with, some of us in the room this morning, we're probably going through this thought process, yeah, but, but I claim to be a Christian and I, I, I feel like I was saved and I asked Jesus into my heart, but my life continues to just be uh, out of control. Um, I seem to be making more bad choices than good choices, and I'm struggling with all these things, and, and I know that there's a, an experience, I know there's a victory, I know that there's a God who sacrificed himself for, for my sins, but I seem to just be a part of so much evil in the world. I'm beyond hope. I've accepted Christ, but yet there's nothing that's out there for me. And let me tell you, you're not alone if you think that. Because so often when we think when we're saved, we think that life is immediately different in a sense that nothing ever goes wrong. We think that when we're saved, that we never make a bad choice. We think that when we're saved, that we never sin. We think, we think, we think. But let me tell you something. That's not the case at all. Because the minute we buy into the lie that I cannot be saved because look at who I am, the deceiver is winning the battle. And that's the deceiver who puts those words into our minds. That's the deceiver, the one who tempts us and moves us into desiring to commit sin in our lives. 
But here's the truth. Folks, I don't know, care, you know, it doesn't matter how we wrap this up. I have some people who say, Pastor, how can you say that we're sinful people? Folks, we are sinful people. We're not perfect. And, and God did not create us to be sinful people. But sin is a part of the world in which we live. And yes, when we're born, we're born into sin. We're born into sin. And that's why it's so important for us to understand that because we're a sinner, that God still chooses to save us by grace. That God says that I know exactly who you are. I know what you're all about. I see every wart on your face. I see every harmful piece in your heart. I know every word that you're about to speak or have spoken or have thought that has done nothing but defeat someone else. And I choose to give you my grace. It's in those times that we get off the path, that we, that we move into a sinful life. But it is God who constantly pursues us. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, he termed that prevenient grace. And Wesley said in those moments when we cannot find God or when we're not interested at all in looking for God, that God chooses to pursue us. That God constantly is searching us and seeking us and moving toward us in his love. And Wesley used the term that God woos us with his grace that we might connect with it. That despite who we are, that we would understand and receive the power of what it means to be loved by God through Jesus Christ. Luke 15, uh, one of my favorite chapters of the Bible. Luke 15 is, is filled with what we call the lost stories. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and what's the third one, folks? The lost son. And we learn in that, we really learn more about the love of God, and we learn about the, the depth and the, the, um, the extent that God pursues us as sinners. And when we look at the first one of the lost sheep, and what does it say? It says, the shepherd will leave the 99 to go find the one who has wandered off. He says that the woman will turn up her entire house, <clears throat> even all that furniture she just bought at the rummage sale. She pushes it aside to find the one coin that she has lost. And the last one, a father whose son has betrayed him, but a father who sees the son coming back, the son who is already thinking in his mind the, the, the speech of repentance of what he will say to his father about how he will grovel at his father and say that I'm not even worthy to eat the food that you slop your pigs with, that I'll be a slave father. But it says that the father sees his son, picks up his garment and runs and embraces him and restores him out of love. Folks, that is God's grace, and that's, that's the powerful things that we need to see as we, as we understand that Jesus is a friend of sinners, that no matter where you are on that spectrum, that God is pursuing you. And the question becomes, will you, will you open your heart? Will you receive? Will you receive this gift that he so freely gives? On this Communion Sunday, I want to... Uh, go a little, little step further, and I want to remind us of something else, that the blood of God through Jesus Christ was shed for us. And it's through the blood that something happens, that we are cleansed, that our sin has been captured or taken or removed by Christ. Listen to what the scriptures say in Isaiah 53, the story of the suffering servant. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes 
we were healed. Here's another one, Second Chronicles. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear them from heaven and I will come and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Here's another one. Paul writes, you see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, that Christ died for the godly? No, he died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for our sins. Folks, there's no greater gift than this. There's no greater gift than knowing, no greater love than one who would lay down his life for the life of another. And I want you to uh, um, imagine and go on a little journey with me this morning. I want you to think about that, that you're here on Wednesday night and you're, you're just about ready to attend one of our classes and get involved in some things that are happening here. And, and just before we disband from our hospitality time, uh, somebody comes running into the church and, and they start screaming out, Google the news, something's happening. Google the news, something's happening. Something's going on in the world. Look, look, look. And everybody who has a, a phone, a data phone, grabs it, and we all look. And we begin to find out that something tragically is, is happening in the world. And what we're finding out is that, that the news feeds originally come out and say that, that two women are lay, lay dying in a hospital in Rhode Island of a mysterious disease. The doctors are perplexed. They have no idea of what is going on. Within hours, it seems like this disease begins to sweep across the nation. Reports come in that California is engulfed, Florida is engulfed, New Mexico, Arizona, Massachusetts, that this disease is spreading rapidly, and doctors and and law enforcement and people, they have no idea what in the world that they can do. And then all of a sudden, when we start thinking that the worst is here, someone comes running out, and they say, wait a minute, wait a minute, we can find a cure, but it will take the blood of someone special. It will take the blood of someone who has not been infected by the disease. Now, all we have to do is find that person. And all of a sudden, our phones go off, not with an amber alert, but with a civil alert that says, everybody, orderly, go to the hospital immediately to have your blood tested. So we all gather our families, and we gather our loved ones in our neighborhoods, And we go down to the hospitals and we're standing in the long lines and we're waiting and the doctors and nurses are extracting blood and as they extract our blood, they quickly run a test and then they dismiss us and then we go our separate way. But let's just say that your family is standing in line. There you are. Let's say there's you, there's your loved one and there's your children and you're standing there in the line. And let's say that they've just tested your blood and you're just about ready to leave like everyone else and they come around you and they say, wait a minute, your family needs to step over here. So you stop and you step over into a corner and there you have your spouse and you have your children and you're standing there wondering what's going on. And then they come back and somebody has a clipboard and says, we found it, we found it. We, we know who it is, we know who it is. And he shouts the name and your son says, daddy, that's me, he's shouting my name. And you start to wonder, what is this all about? What's going on? What is he saying? It's my child. My child doesn't have this disease. He looks well to me. And the doctors come and they pull you into a room and they separate you from your son at that particular moment. And you're wondering what's going on and the doctor comes in and says, we have a problem. What do you mean we have a problem, you say? Well, well, there's good news and there's bad news. 
And you say, well, what do you mean we have a problem? Now there's good news and bad news. Well, the good news is we found a cure that will cure the world of this mysterious disease. The bad news is it's your son's blood. And here's the horrible news, sir. I need you to sign this consent form because we didn't realize that your son, that the one who would have the pure blood would be a minor. And you look at the form and you're trying to read through it and where it says how many pints of blood needed is left blank. And you look at the doctor and you say, why is this blank? How much do you need? How much of my son's blood? Just a pint, right? The doctor says, no. Two pints. Sir, we need all of it. Well, can you give my son a transfusion as you're taking his blood? No, sir, because then that would contaminate his pure blood. We can't do that. And you sit there and you're thinking about it and the doctor says, sir, please sign this form. Humanity, the, the whole survivability of humanity is in the mix. We have, we're losing time. People are dying. We need you to do this now. We need this to happen. Could you sign that paper? Could you go into the room one last time and look at your child and say to your son, trust us. You know that mom and I love you and we would never do anything to harm you and you must always trust us. But then as they're pulling you away and your child is screaming to you, come back, mommy, come back, daddy. Why have you forsaken me? Why are you leaving me here? Could you do that? A couple of days later when the nation is celebrating the life of your child, of what his sacrifice has done, a couple things are happening. Ticker tape parades, excitement, False smiles, people thinking it's just another holiday to have off from work. Some people aren't even attending or watching. They're, they're, they're playing video games or they're on the golf course or wherever it might be. They're kind of doing their own thing. And you get really concerned and upset. And you say, do you not know what my son has done for you? He gave his life that you could live. And this is what you do. God looks at us and he says, look at what I've done for you. The pure blood of Jesus to take away your sins. Jesus, the friend of sinners. Sinners.